Well, we're here. It's Christmas. All right. How many have uh, like a kind of a turkey hangover and are feeling a little tired, sleepy? Okay. Well, I'll get you moving a little, maybe. Um, no, I want to just share with you today. I want to just start out by asking you a simple question: um, Who kind of sets the direction of your life? And what determines the course it daily, even throughout the moments of your day? I was reading a book this uh, couple of weeks back on uh, the whaling ship Essex out of Nantucket. Back in the 1820s, this ship became renowned because um, it was one of the first reports of an actual um, whale that rammed the ship and sank the ship. It was such a historic um, occasion in, in the story when it came back and all the suffering, all the things that took place. Um, Herman Melville wrote his book, Moby Dick, based on this live account. But one of the things that was interesting as I was reading this book, and they would mention a few different times, was how important it was to have someone give direction to your life, or in a sense have something outside of you give you a sense of directional reality. And they would talk about this North Star, True North. You've maybe heard of this idea of true north. and It's the star that um, travelers in that day measured everything by. And true north, this star, is actually used in a sense to set the compass. It's something objective. It's outside of us, and it doesn't change. So I wanted to just do a little kind of experiment with you. Would you all just stand for a moment, please? This will wake you up. Told you I'd get you moving. Those of you who are on live stream right now, stand up, please. Uh, you will miss out on this part in one sense. But I'd ask you to close your eyes. And then I want you, without hurting someone next to you, eyes closed, point to where you think true north is. Okay. Everybody keep pointing. And now, come on, some of you are not pointing. Okay. Now open your eyes, and there are... There are people pointing straight up this way. There are people pointing over here. There are even a few pointing south. That sign back there, that exit sign, and I know this because I took a compass, the true north and a magnetic true north, is that exit sign. So those of you who got it, raise your hand. Let's just see. Give them a hand. You may be seated. Okay. Why in the world would I go through that exercise? Because... There really is actually something objective that sailors will look at that will guide them to where they're supposed to go, to their destination. And here's the point of that. We need something outside of us. Our contemporary worldview, our personal assumptions, our intuitions, what we believe with regard to our own mental map of what we have learned is not the best guide. It's a lot like pointing fingers that we just did. Our feelings are not a good guide on where we're headed and what choices we should make. There was a time before Google Maps, okay? There was a time that when some people who, while they were driving, they would insist on following only their feelings, Or they would only rely on their own sense of direction. You know, they'd play hunches and intuition. 
In fact, they would get rather stubborn about that. They would actually rather get lost than humbly stop and ask for directions. You know what I mean? There's an actual word for that. Do you know what it is? Men. Very, very good. (laughs) Father, dad, boyfriend, husband, any of those would work as well. They're all acceptable terms. Here's the question. Who sets the direction of your life? What determines your worldview? Maybe another way to ask that today is who's discipling you? Where do you get your understanding of yourself, your relational um, abilities with others? Maybe how the world works, the way the world works. We're looking at a passage of scripture, and in this passage of scripture, as we get to Acts 28, and we're coming to the very end of this book, and it's been kind of fun, we're going to next week start into a Christmas series, and I'm really excited about that too. Anyway, um, Acts 28, there's a lot of ways to read this, but we're going to look at this specifically on this whole idea of worldview and understanding that. You could read this, and in, in it's just a long, prolonged um, teaching of Luke through narrative that that Paul is innocent. One thing after another seeks to bring him down. He can't, nothing, and, and he just shows his innocence. Another thing that you find is this sovereignty of God, that there is a personal evil. There's something that that is trying to keep Paul from getting to his destination of Rome where he tells the world about Jesus. And we, we don't realize that, that there is this idea that something keeps coming. So now we've had this incredible... Um, pain and suffering that Paul had when he went into Jerusalem. He, he goes there, he gets beaten, and he is then taken to a place where he's put on trial. He goes through four different trials. Everything seems to keep him from coming. He's there for two years, eventually gets a ship, gets on the ship, and you think, wow, he's going to make it to Rome. He's on the ship, and what we looked at last, the Sunday before, was when he is on this ship, you see it shipwrecks, and they are now floating and swimming to an island called Malta. And what I want us to look at is this truth. We all have a worldview, a lens in which we see and interact with the world. It is either your personal beliefs or your ideas that determine what you see and how you interpret what you see. And in this passage of scripture, we're going to see how this gets played out. Listen to Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. And and keep in your head this word, people of the island. It comes up twice. They're very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on the hand. The people of the island, comes up again, saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, they concluded, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. 
But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. Now what I want you to look at here is the interplay of what I call three different worldviews. As we look at these worldviews, you'll see there's what I call a primitive worldview, the islanders. In fact, it says the people of the islands, or, or the NIV says the islanders. The actual Greek is the word barbaroi, which is the word where we get barbarian. They were barbarian in this sense, that they spoke not a cultured Greek and had cultural Greek customs and understanding that was throughout the world that day, even in Rome. They spoke kind of a broken Greek, let's say. They were barbarians in in the sense of how they viewed the world. And then there's another group, which I would just call a contemporary worldview of that day, and that would have been the um, captain of the ship, the passengers. Um, it could even be, if you get to verse 5 and 7, when we look at that, there's a guy named Publius who comes up. They don't know whether he was actually an islander who was given some jurisdiction over that area, or maybe had come from Rome. We just don't know. But he probably was a part of this more contemporary, cultured worldview where they could speak Greek and he could understand all the things of this contemporary world. But there's a third world view that we um, see in this passage of scripture. It's what I call a Christ-centered worldview, a biblical worldview. And it's, it's in the reading of Luke that you see this. It's in the life of Aristarchus and Paul who show us what it means to be able to interpret the world from the source of Christ's eyes. And the Bible. So as we look at that and we read through that, what a worldview is, and here's just a couple things I want you to understand. When we talk about a worldview, it is a set of assumptions, okay? Your view of the world is based on some presuppositions or truths that you consider to be true. They are either conscious or unconscious beliefs. You may be aware of them or you may not be aware of them. There are biases and prejudices and understanding of the world that we've either been growing up with or we have been taught. So, for example, when I grew up in the church, there was a time when I was in my middle school years and it was at that time that people were growing their hair, guys were, below their ears. And that was a big deal for my dad. And in fact, there was this whole thing going on where, where people, men, were starting to wear beards and mustaches again and were growing long hair. And I remember car rides to church on Sunday mornings, and I had a brother two years older, where there would be a fight the whole way there about whether you should have your hair below your ear or not. What just threw me for a loop is as that point in my life, I'm a seventh grader, I would go down to the hall of fame of the spiritual leaders of this historic old church, and on the picture would be these guys with longer hair, mustaches, and beards which began to cause me to ask in seventh grade, what are the assumptions that we make on how we live life? Do you, there was a time when you would come into the church and it would be quiet and reverent and churches were built in such a way to give a sense of awe and people would grow up and they go, when you come into church, everyone's quiet. You would wear your Sunday best. And then all of a sudden things have changed and those assumptions and beliefs, I'm not saying they're wrong, they're just, they're assumptions and beliefs and biases that we grow up with that we attach meaning to. And then all of a sudden there's a period of time now where what's really important is not this sense of awe, but there's a sense of need for community. So when people come into church, the people who may have at one point have a sense of awe are a little bit bothered by the people who have a sense of community. They walk in and they see someone across the room and they go, hey! 
And they're wearing jeans or shorts or t-shirts or hats. And it's just this whole, what sets? What's true north? How do we figure out what is essential in directing our lives? So, just to put that in place, here's what I want you to look at. We look at this passage of scripture, and there are these three worldviews that have a set of assumptions and conscious and unconscious beliefs and you see it first in the Malta Islanders. It's what I call the primitive worldview. If you note, as you look at their first reaction, I think their first reaction is very interesting. Here is their, their understanding of the world. They see a snake attached to the hand of Paul. Their first reaction is this. They know he's a criminal because they're together with soldiers guarding him. They understand that. And their first reaction is, is very interesting. It is this. It's an animistic worldview. They believe that in this snake is a God of justice who this God of justice came and bit Paul and this is going to cause his death and they surmise here's a murderer. He has gotten his just dues. Now I don't know if we would think that but that's what they think and then the next thing happens. Paul stands there, shakes the snake off. His arm and hand doesn't swell up at all. He doesn't drop dead and they have to according to the way they view the world come up with another conclusion and understanding of what's happened here. And here's their understanding. He must be a god. This is amazing. And, and instead of being in this place where they're judging and seeing him as a criminal who is a murderer who must die, they're now kind of, in a sense, ready to bow before him and say, there's a God before us. And that's the worldview. It's what I call a primitive worldview. It's not probably a worldview that a lot of you hold, right? Then there's this contemporary worldview. And I'm not going to give you a contemporary worldview of, of the people in that day, the Greek cultured people. I'm going to give you a contemporary worldview that we live with that you probably live with. See, our worldview is based on a whole bunch of other assumptions, a whole bunch of other understanding, a whole bunch of other things that we've been taught and some very good things that we've been taught. Our worldview is a secular, materialistic, naturalistic, rationalistic, mechanistic understanding of reality. Does that make sense? All the istics, Right? We look at our world through the eyes of science. We look at our eyes, world through the eyes of reason. We look at our worldview in a natural way. And so what would a contemporary person's response be? What would your worldview be if it was a secular worldview? You would see Paul, and you would see he was being bit, and you would just probably go, ah, oh, shucks, too bad for that guy. Now we'll never know whether he was guilty or innocent. Right? But as you watch him, and he's standing there, and he shakes the snake off, and he walks away, and nothing happens to them, you begin to have to form another conclusion based on your worldview. And, and here's the interesting thing. You're not thinking he's a god. Anybody here think he's a god? It's not our worldview. What they begin to start thinking, if we were from a contemporary worldview, is this. You have a couple different alternatives in a scientific, rationalistic, naturalistic worldview. And, and the first is this. You, you probably believe that it was maybe an old snake. Didn't have a lot of venom, right? Didn't really affect him too much. Good luck for him that he got an old snake that bit him. Then if that isn't the right conclusion, we could come up with a few others. We might think it was a defective snake. Maybe the snake had that genetic kind of um, 
basis, you know, this hereditary genetic makeup that that was maybe one out of about three percent or so that ends up not having any venom. He has what's called venomous sterility. That's a word I made up, so it's not a scientific thing. Well, let's just believe that it has some genetic um, anomaly that's occurred within it. That would be another possibility. Well, there might be another theory that you could think, because if you go, those two aren't right, and you actually did the dissecting of the snakes and everything else, and you found out that, yeah, I mean, it wasn't an old snake, it was really a young snake. In fact, it actually had a lot of venom. We would then continue to go down the line from a naturalistic, rationalistic, scientific viewpoint, and we would probably begin to look at and say, Paul... He must have, you know, he traveled a lot. He's been bit by a lot of snakes throughout his life. He probably has built up a what? Very good. You know your worldview. You're not thinking he's a god. There has to be some rationalistic, naturalistic, scientific explanation of what just happened right there. But the Bible tells us something different. It basically tells us there is this view of the world where there is a God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ and that he has the ability to intervene and he does from occasion and somehow this supernatural breaks into the natural and here is a guy after you do all the study, all the doctors, all the scientists who go, well, this is probably something we can't yet come up and understand. Because the last thing we want to believe is that there is probably something outside of us that is more true and more able to set our course and direction than we ourselves. There's a, a guy, his name is David Bentley Hart, who um, uh, he is a patristic scholar, which means he studied the church fathers when they were more Eastern than Western, so to speak. And then when, when the uh, Catholic, Holy Catholic Church, the Universal Church, not Catholic in the way we talk about it today, but Catholic in a sense, this Universal Church split between Greek and went West into Rome. There was a lot of scholars that, um, that were Thomistic, and I'm getting hard for some of you, but the point is, this, there's, a, there's a view from the Western world that, that has set a course that says nat, the natural world and supernatural are two distinctly different things. And, and David Bentley Hart, from his work, some on the patristics and the more Eastern Orthodox tradition, is basically coming out with a book that talks about nature and supernature and the interweaving of that. And part of the reason he's come up with really work, looking at and working in that is because he's looked at, and he's not himself necessarily a Pentecostal, but he's looked at the way the Spirit of God has been at work in these faith traditions, even in Catholic traditions in the Western world. And he has to come up with a better model a better biblical model that explains reality than the way we do. And, and on top of that, we just have to understand that as you look at quantum physics and all the things that are happening from the quantum aspect of things, they are in some ways troubling to our modern, when we've left that modern to postmodern. So I'm getting into a place that maybe some of you are glazing over. So should I be standing looking point two north? I say all this. Because even our scientific, naturalistic, rationalistic, mechanistic, technological age, all those things are so wonderful. They're good. They're not bad. They're really good things. But they're not the ultimate truth. They're not our true north. In 
And what I want us to look at today is simply this. That God has revealed himself to us as the true north, the star that sets the direction. And there were a whole group of people in the Old Testament who were looking and waiting and wanting. And it was cloudy. They could just see kind of in a murky way until we come to Christmas. We come to the season where we have this breaking through, this nativity, this scene of Jesus, this God who's all-powerful, who is distant in a sense from us, himself coming as a baby, vulnerable, weak, placed in the hands of people, Joseph and and Mary. And here is this Jesus, and in this Jesus grows up this perfect, sinless person who becomes our true north because he shows us the heart of our Father, and he reveals to us that this word, the Bible, a biblical worldview, is a good place to plant your feet on, to understand the world around you. And so I just want you to understand that you have a choice in how you're going to view the world. The Old Testament prophets waited for the clouds to separate that they might see this true north, Jesus Christ. And so it says in verses 7 through 10, it continues with this biblical worldview. Near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. And as it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. And I should just share with you again, some of the words here are medical words, which is again a sign of a Dr. Luke who's writing this stuff. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. And then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. And as a result, we were showered with honors. And when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. And I, I just read that, and, it, and, and here is Paul, who viewed the world through the eyes of Jesus. Thinking biblically for him meant that when he was in a situation, he would, he would, he would recognize that there is a God who, and as he listens to the Spirit, could actually heal. And I, I just imagine, here is Paul standing there, and he brings healing to these people. Now, there's all kinds of ways that people understand the Bible, even around healing. But let me just say this. One of the things that Scripture does say is that we're to proclaim the message of God, we're to heal and cast out demons. It just says that. Now, I don't mean that means that we do it all the time. But you know what? If you are a person who believes that Jesus is the true north, and you share with someone about Jesus is the true north, and they don't listen to you, do you give up? You probably keep praying. I think in the same way, and I just challenge you to think about this, when there are people who are ill, do we just pray once and say, that's all, you know, that's it? Paul prayed three times, and then he said, okay, God, this is this may be your will and what's happening here, and I will receive it. I just challenge us, what is your worldview? Do you, do you even, do you even think of the possibility that if someone comes to you and they say that someone's ill, do you ever say, Jesus, am I supposed to pray for that person? Okay, I'm challenging, I'm getting you a little nervous here. But anyway, if you want to effectively impact the people around you that God has placed in your life, if you want to effectively live in this world in the reality of the way the Bible explains it to us, 
I believe one of the most important things for you to do and for me to do is to daily and humbly examine how I'm looking at the world. There's three critical questions. The first is this. You must know your own personal worldview. And I'm saying everybody here has a personal worldview. What you truly believe, though, may not be what you... And what you truly believe isn't not necessarily what you say you believe or think you believe. What you truly believe is often demonstrated by how you live out what you believe. So as you think about it, that's a really good question. The second question, I think is really an important question, is this. You must study and understand the worldview of the people with whom you are living and working with. You have to have an understanding. What is it? Their basis? What is their understanding? Where are the areas that they view the world? Do they view people who have been bitten by a snake as a god? Or do they view it from a standpoint of, we'll find a scientific explanation for this somehow and somewhere? And finally, as a follower of Jesus, you must be committed to consciously follow the way of Jesus, which means humbly. I have to tell you, humbly is such an important word. I know as I have grown as a pastor and a teacher of God's word, I have grown more sure in one direction, and that is that Jesus is my true north. And who he is revealed through the word of God is what I just go, I know that to be true. But I got to tell you, as it comes to whole lots of other things, there's just a greater sense of humility. Uh, I don't know if I, I, I can't claim the same, except for I know about Jesus, and I know that he is the one who reveals the heart of God, and I know that there's salvation in no one else. I know that my sin is enough to separate me from his presence because when I hurt someone, when I hurt my wife and I, I sin, even if it's not a, a conscious direct action, it separates us. And so I have to share with you, if you're in a place and you've never dealt with even your sin and you don't realize that your sin separates you from God, that's a part of this Christ worldview. He came because he loves you and he's come for you. And he doesn't care how far you've strayed from him. He doesn't care how far you've removed yourself from him. He still wants you to know that he will point you and save you into the direction that God's always intended for you. There's a prayer I pray every morning after I finish my Bible reading and journaling. And it's this simple prayer. I got it from a book called Becoming a King. It says, Father, I agree with who you are. That one's an easy part for me to pray. I agree with what you are doing. Now that gets harder. And I agree with how you're doing it. That's the hardest. But I want to align myself with the true north. And then I continue just to pray this out. I break every agreement I have made with lies that contradict the truth and reality of you and your kingdom. If there are lies and assumptions and biases and beliefs, I, 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 want to, I want to break any one of those that I've agreed with so that I can begin to agree with you and what your kingdom is about. I break every agreement with every lie I've come to believe about who I am and about who you are. There are two things that I think are critically important in a person who wants to follow Jesus. It's understanding your identity through the eyes of Jesus 
and then through the eyes of Jesus understanding the world, his kingdom around you. I, I could break down the Christian faith to those two things. And then, Father, reveal who you are. Set the world right. These are the prayers of Jesus. Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am so convinced that true north is in Jesus. And I'm convinced that the nature of God is to meet people who have strayed from or who have moved from this true north. I believe the work of God, the miraculous work of God, so often shows up in people who are lost and broken and poor and and in the place of what I call um, extreme dependency. Where they're going, God... Unless you, unless by your nature in some way, you are willing to take this wasteland, to take this barrenness, and you are willing in some way to take it this brokenness, without you I'm lost. And that's the true north that comes through Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing this song. And when I look at this passage of Scripture and I ask you to consider it, I ask you to once again just ask yourself, this morning, who sets the course for your life? Are you willing to take a look at some of your beliefs and really ask Jesus to kind of go through them and say, you know, is this really of you? Is long hair and beards really of you? And, 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 and short hair is? I think all the time God is taking us as people and saying, I want you to continually keep your eye on me so that I can set the direction of every belief, every hope that you have in Christ.